Our scripture readings this morning, uh, Old Testament from Genesis chapter 6, and you probably recognize that as uh, the days of Noah, and then we will look at Revelation 16 verses 1 through 7. Uh, We're just going to read the first seven verses there, and that'll be our text this morning. But let's hear the word of God, beginning in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 13. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them from the earth. And there ends the reading from Genesis, and now the first seven verses in Revelation 16 as we continue our study in the Apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord again. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, And you've given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And we're going to stop there at verse 7. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word as we consider it this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your mercy and grace to us through Your Son. We thank You for Your Word. We ask now that by Your Spirit You would open our hearts and minds to hear Your Word, and may it touch our souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed an insert in your bulletin. I put this in there maybe to help out 
Uh, it's got a chart, if you like charts, and kind of shows you how the seven visions go a little further and a little further, uh, covering the same uh, time period, but going further and giving us more information. And then on the other side, we have an outline uh, broken in two. The first three, uh, first 11 chapters uh, form one portion, and then the, uh, where we're at now in the second portion, uh, Revelation 12 through 22, giving you, again, the seven visions and what happens in each one. And then there's just a little uh, thing I added here. This is all from uh, William Hendrickson's uh, More Than Conquerors, um, dealing with... Uh, uh, how the, the Bible really shows a, a unity here in what, what is said uh, in Revelation versus the rest of the Scriptures. So you can take a look at that. I hope that might be helpful to you. Um, brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the reason that I read Genesis 6 uh, for our Old Testament Scripture reading this morning is because it is a reminder uh, of what this world was like back in the days before God destroyed the world with a global flood, destroying every human being on earth except Noah and his family. And the reason he did this is because the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And the truth is that people, the people of this world do not improve on their own. That the human race degenerates. And in fact, the more we multiply, the, the worse we become. When sinners abound, the temptations to sin become more powerful. Restraints upon wickedness become more and more feeble. The power of the conscience becomes weaker and weaker. And we are easily overwhelmed by the abounding sinfulness that we see in mankind. After all, everyone else is doing it, right? And of course, any regard for character or for virtue... It's thrown away completely as being foolish. It's, it's unnecessary in light of the prevailing sins that exist in the world. And so what we see happen is that evil men and women and seducers to do evil, they become worse and worse. And the world becomes more and more corrupt. This was the way of the world in the days of Noah. Evil. Only evil. Always evil. The earth was filled with corruption. It was filled with violence. Everyone was an enemy of God and an enemy of one another. The world was filled with gross ungodliness, hateful selfishness, cruel oppression. Those things were the order of the day. And, and this wickedness, it, it laid waste to both righteousness and happiness for humans. So much so, it was so bad that God was sorry that He made man on the earth, that He was grieved in His heart. I mean, can, can you imagine what it takes to make God grieve? To make Him wish that He had never created mankind to begin with? What does it take? All it takes is the wickedness and the vileness of our sin to grieve the heart of our good and gracious and loving God. God is grieved. And of course, you know what Jesus said. When, when Christ walked this earth, what He said about the days before His coming again would be just like those days, the days of Noah. 
In Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says this, But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And and we can look around us today, right? In fact, we should be looking around us today. And, And we can see that we're living in days that seem to be coming increasingly more and more like the days of Noah before the flood. We live in a time when good is called evil and evil is called good. We live in a time when it seems that the the wickedness of man is great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. We live in a time when sin is paraded in the streets. When the wicked dare the righteous to say anything about what they do or how they do it. And it seems like it's getting worse and worse, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying that because I think the end is near, like it's just around the corner. I have no idea what the future holds. It it may get worse and worse in our day, and the final judgment may come in our day, or in our children's day, or in our grandchildren's. Or... God in His grace and mercy may send a revival upon His church by the power of His Spirit, a a revival that overflows into the world, bringing about a great repentance and conversion. Or, there's even another opportunity, God may just send judgment to cleanse and to purify His church so that we might further fulfill the Great Commission in the days to come. And so those last two options there, they they probably mean that the end is still a ways off. We don't know. But you know something? It really doesn't matter right now for all of us gathered here. What matters right now is that we hear the Word of God, that we reject the wisdom of the world, and that we give ourselves to our great God and King, that we seek His face, that we worship and serve Him while He gives us breath. While we're alive, that's what we're called to do. Because you and I are still called to be lights in this world of darkness. Even if it grows darker and darker before the dawning of the eternal day. That's our calling. Now before we start in the text here, I I need to point out to you that the seven bowls of God's wrath that we find here in Revelation 16, they're very similar to the plagues uh, of Egypt, right? Let's start back in Exodus chapter 7. And if you think about it, those plagues really go all the way to Exodus 14 when Pharaoh and his army are overthrown in the Red Sea. Uh, But also, these bowls are not only connected to those plagues of wrath, they're also closely connected to the trumpets of judgment that we covered back in chapters 8 and 9. There's not an exact correlation here But there are actually so many similarities that we should really notice that this is true. That there is a correlation here. The first trumpet is hail and fire and blood. They were thrown on the earth, right? And the first bowl of God's wrath is poured out upon the earth. And we have a a parallel text in Exodus chapter 9. The the second trumpet, a blazing mountain is thrown into the sea and one-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the creatures of the sea die. One-third of the ships are destroyed. The second bowl is poured on the sea and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. 
But you can look to Exodus chapter 7 to see the same thing. Same similarity. In the third trumpet, a great star fell from heaven, and a third of the rivers and springs became like wormwood, and many died, we're told. The third bowl is poured out on the rivers and the waters, and they become like blood. So you can see uh, Exodus 7 again. With the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are struck. That is, they are darkened. And the fourth bowl, we see, is poured out on the sun, which scorches people with fire. Again, there are similarities to the plagues, Exodus 9 and 10. With the fifth trumpet, the bottomless pit is open. It's darkening of the sun, and these demonic scorpions come, and they torment all of mankind. The fifth bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom is darkened, and the people, we're told, are in anguish. And you can see that in Exodus 10. Uh, with the sixth trumpet, the four angels bound in the Euphrates with their cavalry of 200 million, they come and they kill a third of humanity. Uh, the sixth bowl is poured out on the Euphrates, which dries up, allowing the kings of the east to invade for the, the battle of Armageddon. And again, you can see Exodus 8 or something of that nature. But I would also point you to Exodus 14 and the destruction of uh, Pharaoh's army and Pharaoh himself. And then finally, the seventh trumpet sounds, right? And we're told there are loud voices in heaven announcing the kingdom of God in Christ with lightning, thunder, earthquake, and hail. And when the seventh and final bowl of God's wrath is poured out in the air, in the air a loud voice from God's throne announces it's done. And then there was lightning, thunder, an unbelievable earthquake, and terrible hail. And again, you can go back to Exodus chapter 9. Uh, as well as, I would even point out, Exodus 19, where we read about God coming down on Mount Sinai, and there's some similarities there as well. Now, there's not a one-to-one correspondence, I'll grant you that, to be sure, between the trumpets and the bowls, but they are similar enough to be considered parts of the same overall program of God's divine judgment. And they occur during the same general period. It's a recapitulation. It's a repetition of the same judgment, covering the same period of time, but with increasing intensity. But here's how I'd like to to divide this up, generally speaking. We could put it this way. The first six trumpets that we looked at before and the first five bowls cover the time between Christ's first and second comings, while the last trumpet and the last two bowls bring us to the last judgment. I should also point out this in a comparison here, that only two of the trumpets are explicitly identified as those that punish unbelievers. But six of the bowls clearly identify unbelievers are those who are afflicted by these bowls of God's wrath. And so really that implies that even those unspecified trumpets are predominantly plagues that are directed against unbelieving humanity, just as the plagues of Egypt were directed against the Egyptians and not to the children of Israel. Uh, you can look up Exodus 8.23, which speaks of that difference that God made. But there is a difference here that we need to understand between the trumpets and the bowls. The bowls are not warnings. That ultimately they are to be understood as punishments that further harden people in their sin and thus demonstrate God's uniqueness plus His incomparable omnipotence, His almightiness, as well as His righteous judgments, as we're going to see as we work our way through these. 
And, and, and this is actually the promise of God. This, this is a fulfillment of the promise of God to His people. A promise that He gave all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 15, before they entered into the land of promise. The Lord said this to them. Or probably Moses said this. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. So, in fact, this verse in Deuteronomy really broadens the Egyptian plagues by applying them to all future people, to all future nations who hate God's people. And here in Revelation 16, we see that the Exodus plagues are applied to the ungodly throughout this current age in the first five bulls and to the wicked in the conclusion of history in the last two bulls. So, so what's the purpose of all this? Because this, this is not just a demonstration of God's just judgment on sinners. Ultimately, ultimately, it is a demonstration of God's glory to all. So let's move on here to chapter 16 and see how the Lord is going to bring His great promise of the consummation to pass. Uh, The theme is the Lord God Almighty sends the bulls of His terrible wrath to punish the ungodly. This is part one for this morning. We're just going to look at the first three bulls of the wrath of God in verses 1-7. through Next time we're going to cover the the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh bulls. Uh, We're going to finish the the chapter. Okay? You believe me? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Now, now if you're like me, uh, when you read these visions... It's sometimes hard not to think of them in a kind of a literal sense, right? And I think for me, that has to do with my early upbringing in the church. But I think it should be clear to you, as it is to me now, that these visions are symbols, right? They're they're pictures. They're signs of what God is doing and what He will do. In fact, we should realize these things have commenced already. That's what the first verse of Revelation says. That these things must shortly take place. The very first verse says that in the whole book. The third verse says to write because the time is near. And the sixth verse in the last chapter of Revelation says that God revealed this by His angel to show His servants the things which must shortly take place. And so these visions are already taking place. And they will continue to take place until the final day when they will come in their fullness and completeness. So listen again uh, to how the bulls of God's wrath are introduced to us in verse 1 of chapter 16. John says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bulls of the wrath of God on the earth. So we're told here that John hears a mighty voice, a loud voice, or the voice of the Almighty is probably a better way to put it. It's a loud voice. Why? Because the Lord God of heaven and earth is filled with anger due to the refusal of the the followers of the dragon, those who have the mark of the beast, their refusal to repent of their sin and to turn to Him for mercy and grace and forgiveness. And it's not just that they've ignored the gospel. They have ultimately rejected Christ. They have persecuted and murdered His people. And so the evidence against the world is irrefutable. 
And so God's wrath comes in bowl after bowl, growing in intensity, growing in severity, until it all culminates with the final judgment, where the wicked are cast forever into the lake of fire. And so God commands His angels to go and pour out His wrath upon the earth. Uh, the psalmist he echoes the cry of the martyrs under the altar back in chapter 6 of Revelation. Remember that? The psalmist echoes that when he says in uh, Psalm 79, verses 5 through 7, How long, Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his dwelling place. Do you see how that fits so well with what we're looking at here in Revelation? And so what we see here now in the book of Revelation in chapter 16 is the answer to the prayers of God's people down through the centuries. How long, O Lord? When will the end come? So let's look here and uh, work our way through the bowls of God's wrath. Verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So this bowl of God's wrath that causes suffering on those who worship idols. That is specifically on those who have, what, the mark of the beast and who worship him and his image. That's the bowl that's coming here. The bowl is figurative. And you remember the mark of the beast is figurative and so must be this sore, right? This foul and loathsome sore. It must be figurative of some sort. And So in other words, those who worship the beast, those who worship the dragon, those who follow the false prophet, what's going to happen to them is they're going to suffer. That just as the plague of boils in Egypt caused great suffering among the Egyptians so much so you remember they said, this is the finger of God. That's what they told Pharaoh. So those who commit idolatry, those who worship the beast, they will be tormented greatly. And here's what I want you to remember. Even if you and I as believers suffer in the flesh, our afflictions are never, ever bowls of God's wrath. Because you see, our sufferings, our afflictions are for our good. Not for our judgment. And we know that, of course, clearly from Romans 8.28. But you see, for the wicked, this suffering, these torments, are only signs of worse things to come if they don't repent. Which they don't do. The second bowl is poured out on the sea. Verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. Now, the sea is often used in the Scriptures as an instrument of destruction. You see that in the destruction of Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea, right? Or as the psalmist puts it in Psalm seventy-eight fifty-three, as he's looking back on that, he says, And he, God in the cloud, led them, the children of Israel, on safely so that they did not fear, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. There really are some striking similarities between the second trumpet and the second bowl, both of which are based upon the plague of Egypt where Moses turned the Nile into blood. And so there's this 
Same kind of judgment in, in the trumpet and the bowl as there was with the plague. With this difference, though, notice this. The trumpet has a partial effect, one-third. The bowl's effect, we're told, is total. And, and that makes it clear that there, you know, there can be a... a uh, this, this bowl can be applied in time, space, and history partially in this world by God's judgment. But it can also be applied universally. There can be a final time even in this age, before the final age, when it is coming upon uh, a group or uh, a person in its finality. But what is the plague a sign of? What does this point to? Because are we really uh, you know, waiting for the oceans to be turned to blood? Are, are we, is that what we're waiting to happen? Or is this something else? This is the vision, a picture of something else. Blood in the Scriptures represents... Suffering. Suffering. And it can be the suffering of the wicked, or it can be the suffering of Christ, or it can be the suffering of His people. And so this speaks, this second bowl speaks of suffering. Probably an economic plague that strikes the world with famine conditions, with economic deprivation. That anticipates the destruction of Babylon the Great that's going to come later on in chapter 18. But in other words here, the second bowl is a figurative sign. It's a picture, at least in part, of the demise of the ungodly world's economic life support system. Think of the Nile in Egypt. They depended upon the Nile. And here's the point. What they put their trust in will fail them. Because they have rejected the only true God and the provision that He has made for them. They reject Him. They trust in something else. But what they trust in will fail. Now, I could just read uh, Psalm 37 to you at this point as an application. In fact, I would encourage you just to read Psalm 37 today, this afternoon, or sometime before you go to bed tonight. But let me just cherry pick a few verses here. Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2. You, you know these words. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall, they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Verses 12 and 13, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Verse 25, Psalm 37, I've, I've been young, and now I'm old. I can say these words. And yet I've seen, I've not, not seen, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Verses 37 through 40. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressor shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him. Not the world. Not the dragon, not the beast, not the false prophet. They trust in the Lord. And the day is coming, beloved, when all will be made right. And you and I, we shall glorify God and we, should, we shall enjoy Him forever. It's coming. It is. Never forget that. The third bowl of God's wrath is, is also parallel with the third trumpet from chapter 8. Verse 4 of our text says this, 
then the angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now, the third trumpet uh, doesn't mention blood. It, it does mention the rivers and the springs, uh, which became bitter and says that many died from the water. But, but again, the point here is to keep us from looking at these visions literally, to make us see that these are signs, that they are pictures of God's judgment on the wicked in our time and in the time to come. And this, again, it speaks of an economic hardship in the world. It speaks of hunger and famine, of want, of death. But the third trumpet and the third bowl also refer back to you know, the plague of Egypt back in Exodus 7, again, where Moses turned the water in the Nile to, into blood, which brought great hardship upon the Egyptians because they worshipped the Nile. And what they depended on failed them. The psalmist records this in Psalm 78, verse 44, where it says, God turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. Why did this happen to Egypt? Why did God bring this plague upon them? Because they persecuted, they tormented, they killed, they murdered the people of God. Why does this happen now in our day and in the days to come and on the final day? Why is this going to happen? Because the followers of the dragon, the servants and worshipers of the devil, persecute and torment and imprison and torture and kill the followers of the Lamb. That's why this judgment is coming. And beloved, this is the way it has always been. This is the way it is now. And the way it will always be until the end finally comes. Because The reason is because there can be no truce between the courts of heaven and the courts of hell. There can be no peace between the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world and the dragon who brought sin into this world. The way of Christ and the way of this world are totally opposite. The way of Christ and the way of the false church are also completely opposite as well. I mean, doesn't it make it clear that the health and wealth gospel is completely bankrupt? Don't we see that? Even as their false prophets fill up their bank accounts with the riches of this world? Because that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christianity is the way of Christ. And the way of Christ is the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is the way of suffering. You and I, we, we've been blessed to live in prosperous times. To live in times when our Christian heritage, at least in some way, has had some sort of effect on our society that we live in. But you know that unless the Lord sends a revival upon His church that, that overflows to the nation around us, it sure looks like we are headed for much tougher times. And remember, God has often sent tough times to prepare His people for better times to come. So, so again, let me remind you of two very important promises here of God to us, to you this morning, as His people in the times in which we live. Number one is to remember this. The bowls of God's wrath are never for you. They're never for us. We, we may feel the effects of those bowls in this world, but they do not have that same purpose in our lives as they do for the wicked. Whatever happens to us, even, whatever happens to us, even if it is death itself, is for our good, for our eternal good. 
You remember how the Apostle puts it in Romans 8.18, a verse that you and I should, we should hide this in our hearts? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And you may remember that list that Paul uses later on in Romans 8. Uh, he's quote, he quotes from the Old Testament, from the Psalm, Psalm 44, verse 22. But he says this in uh, Romans 8, verses 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer, of course, is nothing can, right? But listen to his list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Can those things separate us from the love of Christ? No. But know this. It is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You see, this is the way it is for God's people in this world. To follow Christ is to follow the way of the cross. And that leads us to glory. Times may be tough, and they may get much tougher, but nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. And number two here, let's, let me remind you that, thankfully, whatever you and I may be called to suffer in this life, it doesn't continue forever. First of all, there's death. We get to die. That's the Christian's coronation, Remember? That brings an end to our suffering. It's to leave the land of the dying and to enter the land of the living for God's people. And second, there's the final judgment. That's what's coming. When all wrongs will be righted, when sin will be punished, all sin will be punished, and the cause of Christ and His church will not only be vindicated, but the followers of Christ, the followers of the Lamb, will be rewarded through the merits of our Savior with the glorious, unending joy of being with our blessed Savior forever and ever. That what our God has in store for us and that which is to come is beyond our imagination. And what we endure in this life will be like a dream in the night that passes away. Now there are three more verses here that will conclude our text this morning that explain to us why God is doing this to the wicked. And why He is just and righteous in doing so. You know, I'm sure unbelievers try to maintain that, well, I've never done anything against God. But the truth is that their whole lives are an affront to God and to His Son and to His kingdom and to the Gospel. To ignore God, the God who created them, is to live as a fool. As it says in both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And they are fools who do not prepare for that day when they will stand before God, the God who holds their lives and their souls in His hand. But listen here to what uh, the angel who poured out this third bowl says in verses 5 and 6. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. The point here is that our God is righteous in His judgment. And the wicked deserve His just wrath to be poured out upon them. And, and you'll notice here how, how the punishment fits the crime. 
God's good at that, isn't He? The wicked of this world have shed the blood of His saints, so let them drink blood. In other words, the wicked of this world have caused great suffering upon the church of Jesus Christ. So let them suffer as well for all that they've done. And they will. The the scriptural principle comes true, as it always does. They will reap what they've sown. And again, the basis for this is found in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah 49, verse 26, where the Lord promises His people, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall drink their own blood. And, And why does God promise to do this? Then all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The wicked will suffer because they have caused God's people to suffer. But I want to point out something else too. Notice that just as our God and just as the Lamb, we're told this in, in chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 9, and just as we as His followers, in chapter 3, verse 4, just as God the Lamb and His followers are worthy to receive blessing, so we're told here that these persecutors, these wicked idolaters, are worthy and deserving of this divine punishment from God. As they have poured out the blood of saints, so their blood will be poured out. Now there's one last verse here. One last declaration of our text in verse 7. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So this voice comes from the altar in the heavenly tabernacle, the place where God dwells. Not sure who says it. Could be an angel. Could be Christ Himself. But who says these words is really not that important. What is important is the truth that it conveys to us. That God's judgment of the world, His judgment of the wicked, is true and righteous. And it reminds us of what was said back in chapter 6. In verse 10, in the cry of the martyrs as they were under the altar, all of which is fitting. And again, it emphasizes the justice of God in all of this. What did the martyrs cry? What did they call to God in their prayer from the altar? That's where they were at, remember? Remember they cried with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true. That's how they described God. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I should also point out that the name that's used here for God, Lord God Almighty, it speaks of God's absolute sovereignty over all the affairs of this cosmos, the universe. But especially over His affairs of His people. This is the same name, Almighty, that's used back in chapter 1, verse 8. It's also used in chapter 15, verse 3. It's a name that speaks of God's almighty power that He can do as He pleases. And no one can stop Him. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Isaiah 46, 10, where God says that He is the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient time, things that are not yet done. That's what we're reading about, right? saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And then from the New Testament, Ephesians 1.11, uh, In Him, 
Also, we have received, obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him, and here's how He's described God, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This is the God whom we serve. The God who will bring all things to a glorious consummation in Christ, and none can stop Him. That's where we put our hope and our trust. This world is passing away. But the Word of God, the promise of God, abides forever. Now, beloved, I know that I have not even mentioned the Lord's Supper once in all of this. And I really don't like to just tack it on at the end of the service. But you and I, we're we're about to gather around the table of our Lord, a table that proclaims to us clearly and without reservation that His body was broken for us, that His blood was shed for us. The sin that was against us, the very sins that you and I had committed, including our original sin in Adam, they've all been paid. They've been paid in full. There's nothing more that needs to be added. Nothing more that needs to be done. Because Christ has done it all. But maybe in in light of what we heard this morning, we need to think a little bit harder about what Christ has accomplished for us. Because you see, if Jesus did not do this for us, if Christ did not make atonement for us, then you and I, we would all be under the wrath of God. Yes, we deserve the bowls of God's wrath too. But you see, the wonder, the beauty of the Gospel is that those bowls were poured out upon our Savior in our place. He endured our punishment to the uttermost. He satisfied the wrath of God that was against us. It is as the Apostles' Creed says, He descended into hell. That's what that means. It means that He suffered hell for us on the cross. And without His work of atonement, without His work of grace in our hearts, every single one of us would be just like the world at large. Without hope and without God. And what would we deserve? Not just the trumpets of warning. Not just the bowls of wrath. But we would deserve to spend eternity in hell forever and ever. And that's what Christ endured for your sake. That's why He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what was the answer? Why did the Father abandon the Son? For you. To save you. To save you from your sins. To save you for all eternity. It truly is, as the Apostle says of our Savior, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And all God's people said, Amen.